Hello, welcome to season three of the Pretty Deadly podcast. I'm Susie Collett, the creator of Pretty Deadly Self-Defense, a self-empowerment program through self-defense. I'm a storyteller, a violent crime survivor, and a martial artist. I've used these experiences to develop a program that's tailored for the way women actually learn, the things we actually face, and that's actually fun. Well, I think it's fun. I believe you learn just as much when you're laughing as when you're crying, and I'd rather be laughing. In the first two seasons of our podcast, I chatted with Kate Leone, a journalist, single mom, and world traveler. Kate had never taken a self-defense course before, and we figured her questions were probably your questions too. So if you've been following along all along, thanks for listening. You can keep up with Kate on her podcast at RestoriaTherapy.com. For this season, it seemed like a good time to change things up a bit. The new theme song you're hearing, by the way, is an excerpt from a song called Icarus Wish by Berlin punk trio Dead Centuries, who also happen to be my neighbors and who are generously letting me use this track, which you can also find on Bandcamp. Anyway, I thought it was time to head out into the world, virtually speaking, and talk to other women and men in the universe of self-defense, self-empowerment, and martial arts. I'm talking to old friends, new acquaintances, and complete strangers. Yes, I do talk to strangers, because I can defend myself. But I might hang up on them, too. We'll see. So, if you've stuck with us so far, keep listening, keep learning, keep laughing. You never know who we're going to talk to next. Well, I do. Welcome to episode 42 of the Pretty Deadly Podcast, now in our third season. This week, I'm chatting with my old Ninpo pal, Aaron Riley. Aaron started training Ninpo around the same time I did. Actually, I think he's about four years ahead of me. He trained at our Colorado sister school, Kusa Dojo, or Wash Park Martial Arts. All the schools in our collective have Ninpo names and regular names, except for our Concho, our head sensei, Chad Minge, who finally opened a school back in his hometown, Covington, Louisiana, and I guess figured, ah, fuck it, and just called it the dojo. For those of you who don't know, Ninpo Taijutsu and Ninjutsu are basically the same thing, movement and technique-wise. Ninpo incorporates more of the esoteric aspects of the art, although I've trained at strictly ninjutsu dojos too, and I've seen a lot of crossover. We'll talk about the sillier mythologies, legends, and politics in the world of martial arts in a later episode as soon as I pin down my friend Ed. Not literally. Well, maybe. By the way, doesn't strictly ninjutsu sound like a movie? Maybe a follow-up to Kung Fu Hustle. Anyway, back to Aaron. Aaron lives in Colorado and has been training in Ninpo for over 20 years. He's one rank higher than me at Chudan Menkyu. He's a great martial artist with a special focus on Binkenjutsu, our sword art in Ninpo. And that's the reason I'm talking to Aaron today, actually. Aaron has applied his Binkenjutsu training to the Saber Legion, adapting his deep understanding of our classical sword art to create techniques and a training system for members of TSL. If you don't know about the Saber Legion, it's a community started by two guys in Minnesota who wanted to fight with lightsabers, like the kind you can actually have sword fights with. They've grown into a huge organization with chapters all around the United States, annual tournaments, teams, but I'll let Aaron tell you about it. Thanks for being here today, Aaron. Not a problem. Thank you so much for having me. I'm, I'm excited to share. And, and good morning, by the way, because it's what time for you? Uh, it is nine o'clock in the morning here. Nine o'clock in the morning. So it's like, God, I'm about to make the worst joke because <laughs> it's five o'clock here. So, you know, I want to make a nine to five joke, except that it's actually so stupid, I can't think of a joke to go that, with that. That's okay. We are working nine to five on this call. Oh, see, you did it for me. <laughs> that's teamwork. That's right. That's what it's all about, right? <laughs> that's what it's all about. It's also just about being old. But, okay, teamwork. <laughs> right? How many people will even get that joke, right? I'd be like, what? Is that a movie? Is that a TV show? I don't know. I don't know. Dolly Parton's having a resurgence, so... I mean, I hate to say resurgence because I don't think she ever went away, but... And definitely not for some people. I know that's sort of my wife's dreams eventually go to Dollywood, so... Oh, yeah. Yeah. But also, I mean, so I think she's being discovered by a new generation. Maybe they'll figure out the 9 to 5 thing as well. as well. Hopefully. Anyway, we're not here to talk about Dolly Parton, although we could 
because she's she's certainly badass. But we're actually here to talk about you. Um, so you do something really exciting that I want to get to a little bit later. But first, I want to share with our listeners your background, who you are, and how we met. And you you live in Colorado. I do. And is that where you first discovered NIMPO? I did actually discover it here in uh, 1994, shortly after my high school graduation. Uh, a group of friends and I decided we needed to stay in contact, right? We didn't want to lose contact. And so we decided we were going to study a martial art and we were just thumbing through the yellow pages. That's right. This is old enough that it was the yellow pages. And we stumbled upon an art called uh, Genbukan. And we're like, well, that sounds original. I've never heard of anything like that. You know, during that age, it was all either the word Kung Fu, Karate, or Taekwondo was basically all people knew about martial arts back then. And uh, so we're like, well, let's go check this out. And uh, so we drove to Parker, uh, Colorado from Westminster, Colorado, which is about a 35 mile drive each direction. And uh, we started taking this art and we just fell in love with it. Uh, it was a lot of fun. There were four of us when we started. There are two of us who still actively study today. Mm -hmm. uh, but yeah, we just, we fell in love with it uh, right from the beginning and just couldn't stop going. Even though, like I said, it was a 70 mile round trip. Every, every time we went to train, we just couldn't keep away from it. Yeah, well, that's, that's, I mean, I think that's what happens, right? Like it speaks to something inside you so clearly and so strongly that you're like, yeah, you know, rain or shine, hell or high water, I'm going to the dojo. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. And so, go ahead. <laughs> but no, you were going to continue. I was going to say, so you have been training since 1998. Uh, 94. 94. I'm so sorry. 94. Yeah. But yeah, so uh, basically what had happened is I had uh, been a casual martial arts taker through most of my youth. I had taken Taekwondo and I had taken Kung Fu. I'd actually taken Muay Thai somewhere for a while. And uh, something would happen along the training where I didn't believe I would be able to do this for the long run. Or I didn't necessarily believe it would really work for me. Something about it just didn't click, right? So I would end up moving to another style. And in this particular art, when we uh, got to learning our very first uke, our first block, right? Mm -hmm. And the very first movement you do is to move off of the line before you even attempt the counter. I was like, see, now that makes sense. Right. Let's get out right. of the way of being hit rather than trying to be faster or stronger. And right. that, just, right. that just spoke to me. I was like, see, now that I can get behind. And uh, ever since then, I just, it just was all about the, the training. Isn't that funny? The the first class that I ever observed, not I didn't even participate. I was just observing. I learned something um, really important, uh, not only about the training, but just about life in general. And it was that that I was like, oh, that makes sense. This is something and the, the same thing. This is something I can get behind and I'm in the right place. This is where I'm going to be. Yep, that's exactly what happened happened to us for those of us that stayed and uh and we've been there ever since. So yeah, it's it's uh it's definitely original in a lot of its uh mindsets. I've never seen another martial art that stresses that idea of sabaki, the evasion uh -huh. so much even though it's a part of every martial art, right? No martial art entirely stays stagnant in one place. And they're always moving, you know, there's footwork right. and everything involved, but nobody stresses it as much as NIMPO does. It is just an integral concept to everything that we do. And, and right. I can completely get out of that. Get yourself out of harm's way and then deal with the situation like that. That just makes so much sense to me. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's what, when I'm teaching self-defense, I, that's usually what I tell people is the first rule of self-defense in kind of a broader way, you know, run, you know, get out, get out of the way. And you know, it's not that we don't want to get into a fight. We want to, you know, avoid the fight. And if it if something keeps coming, then, of course, we want to be able to kind of shut it down. But the first thing is get out of the way. Absolutely. Don't be there yeah, and you yeah. can't get hurt. Right. Yeah. Generally. Yeah, yeah absolutely. <laughs> so how. Go ahead, I was go just going to say, and that's something that when you train long enough, you realize applies to life in general. You know, it's not just the physical techniques. It's all about, it's all about how you can apply that to your life. And that's really what sets 
for me anyway, what sets NIMPO apart from the others is it's not about winning trophies or competitions or training for anything like that, but it's, it's training on how to apply the principles of what you're learning to your day-to-day life. Right, right. I find the same thing. What is your rank these days? So I have uh, officially attested and achieved my second degree instructor certification. So okay. uh, Chuden Minkyo. Mm-hmm. So, and uh, I also have my Shoden in the Rokshakobo and Shoden in uh, Beacon Jutsu, which is the katana. So mm-hmm. the six foot staff, the katana, and then our unarmed Mutadori, our basic Taijutsu. I have the second degree instructor certification. And for those who don't know, in our system, there are a total of five instructor certifications mm-hmm. that you can receive. So, Right. So, yeah. So are you training still to get your next... For your next to get your i don't like those terms but are you training to progress absolutely i'm uh, always training to progress currently i'm actually working with uh, the highest ranking student in the system we trained in so i'm working with uh, sensei alan friedman out in california mm-hmm. and i'm helping him uh structure and put together uh, a manual uh, so mm-hmm. we're working hard on getting that end done and we're collaborating, you know, in this time of COVID, it's very hard to get together. I was planning mm-hmm. two or three trips to go train with them in person this year, but, uh, between video calls, you know, zoom chats, uh, emails. So for uh, that's what we've been working on is putting this, uh, manual together to kind of codify, you know, he's been in it longer than I have and I've been in it, what, 26 years now. So, you know, just trying to collect all this knowledge that we've gotten into into a place so that we've got a way to hopefully preserve it should anything happen, right? Yeah, it's a beautiful idea. And I know I still owe you all my Hanbo notes. That there is no rush. We've got lots to do. If we ever get everything caught up, maybe I'll start pestering you. <laughs> Don't start pestering me. Oh, my God. Um, so what – let's talk a little – all right. Eh, I'll cut all this shit out. Um, you and I met at the Los Angeles Dojo when you guys come Colorado occasionally to train under Sensei Minch in Los Angeles. And I always really enjoy training with you. But when I took my, um, when I tested for my first level instructors, which is my current rank, which is the, the hardest test it's, they're all they're all really hard, and I thought I did terribly. And afterwards, you were the person who said, um, "Yeah, this is the hardest one of all." And I was like, "Why didn't you say that before I took the tests?" <laughs> I was really I was really annoyed. Actually, I was like, "Oh, now you tell me. That, Thanks." <laughs> so now you tell me. Great. That is actually part of of the training, and one of the ways mm-hmm. that I like. One of the things I like about those bigger tests is, uh, for starters, when you take those bigger tests, it actually changes the mindset. When you're testing through the manual in the smaller chunks, right, just for blue belt, blue with white stripe, whatever, Mm -hmm. the smaller chunks of tests, um, you know the feeling. And it's almost like taking a test when you were in school, right? There's a Mm -hmm. set of knowledge. I told you these, this is going to be on your test. You studied specifically to be able to answer those questions. But when you move to those bigger tests, those instructors level certification tests, you have so many techniques and you have so many uh, things they're going to ask you and you have to do it on both sides and they may come up with something, you know what, try it from this attack. Like they throw all these little things out there. And that's actually part of the test is it forces you to adapt, not to something that you could prepare. Right. It's something that I really... um... I, I've always appreciated and I've only learned over the course of the past few years, especially as I've been developing pretty deadly as a business, um, how much that training has helped me in business situations to adapt. You know, like, oh, my, I don't know, anything like, you know, oh, the person who is developing my website suddenly disappeared. That sucks, but yep. instead of shutting down, I adapt. You know, that's kind of a, a big and, and broad um, example. But it's also been really, really helpful during this pandemic. You know, learning how to adapt to things, find your balance in situations that you can't predict, in situations that none of us have ever been in before. 
But understanding that because we've been, I mean, not because, but it's helpful that we've been through those tests that, you know, you can do it. You're, you're, you're going to be able to somehow roll with it and it might not look pretty and you might not even get a belt out of it, but <clears throat> because we're not always passed on those tests, but the, um, but you'll survive, you'll survive and you've got yourself to show for it and you know, you can do it. Hundred percent, and that's that's one of the things that I love about those tests. They're so long, you know. These tests are three plus hours long most yeah. of the time. Yeah, they're brutal. so. Yeah, you reach a certain point where you're not running efficiently anymore. You're running spirit purely on sheer willpower. You get up again because you know you have to, right? You, right. It is the goal that you set for yourself to finish these tests. So you just get up again, even though it's hard, even though you're tired, you're thirsty, you're probably frustrated because half of this stuff isn't going the way that you wanted it to. You're probably not performing at your best at this point. You've done this right. technique better and you know it, right? right? But you have to get up and just keep going. And that's one of the biggest things that it, that it teaches us. I've said in teaching to my students a lot of times that we are the kind of people that we study for hours at a time for weeks of our lives, month over month, turning years into decades of trainings to develop a set of skills that we hope we never have to use. Right. And even if we do have to use, it's probably going to be for less than 60 seconds of our life, right? Those kind of encounters when people get in physical encounters, which is what people think the martial arts is all about, learning to fight. But when you get into those physical encounters, they're usually fairly short, right? Physical encounters don't last for two hours like a John Wick film, right? That, that's not how it works. Right. They're usually over fairly quickly. And for starters, we're trying to avoid those situations. But then if we get in that situation, we may have spent 20 or 30 years of our lives training for 15 seconds. And that's the kind of mindset and mentality that we're training for. So even if something isn't going to plan, you get up and you keep going and you keep right. doing it. I, it's, it's, uh, I, it's, that brings up two really interesting points for me. Um, one, in the sense of especially what we're experiencing right now as a society globally through social unrest um, that's been exacerbated by the pandemic, the, the, all these people who are basically actively trying to bring about end times yeah which is that you know i've met martial artists over the course of my life once i left um the dojo in los angeles and started traveling around and and visiting other dojos is i'm you know you meet people whether it's from nimpo or ninjutsu or from another art who they train so much for that 20 seconds that 30 seconds and then they never use it and then they get frustrated so they create right that 20 or 30 seconds themselves. And that's a really interesting aspect to me because it's, it's a, there's obviously something very lacking in the training to, to find a frust or to experience a frustration that you don't get to use your training and not understand that it's actually, it's, it's, it's so much more than that. It goes beyond that. But the other thing that it brings to mind, actually, which is more interesting to me because it's less um, doomsday-ish, is, uh, is the story about Picasso. So Picasso, this, I don't think that the story is actually true, but it's a really good illustration of what it means to be good at something. The story goes that Picasso is sitting in a cafe and, you know, like when he was in his 50s or 60s and somebody walks up to him and says, oh, you know, maestro, can you, would you just draw a little sketch on this cocktail napkin for me? And so he says, sure. And within two or three strokes, he draws one of his famous bulls. But if you, and if you know anything about art, you'll know that at the beginning of Picasso's career as an artist, his art was very classical. And of course, you know, he created new forms and, and, but by the end, these bulls that he's so famous for really were done in literally maybe four strokes. They're just line drawing. So he does this bull and he gives the cocktail napkin to the guy and he says, that'll be 30,000 francs. 
and whatever, whatever the money is in this in this imaginary story. But that'll be 30,000 francs. And the guy says, what are you talking about? That took you five seconds. And he says, no, that took me 60 years to be able to do that in five seconds. And that's that to me is even more applicable to what you're saying in the sense that if we ever do need to use the things that we're practicing and training in a physical way to defend ourselves, it's, it's, it's all that training to only need five seconds, Absolutely. basically, which, I, you know, when I put it that way, that sounds kind of badass. That is absolutely the truth of it. The other side of that, where I think a lot of people get frustrated early on to where they never end up spending, you know, the 60 years training on any skill. Because at the end of the day, martial arts is simply a skill-based passion. It really isn't much right. different than drawing or sculpting or jewelry making. It is a skill that you develop over time. And uh, the thing is, when people join, they have a vision in their head of what they want to do or what they want to be capable of doing, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and their skills don't match their vision, right? There's a disconnect. I'm not good enough to draw like this, or I'm not good enough to do the handspring, or I'm not good enough right. to perform this throw well, right? Whatever the skill is. So they get frustrated and they end up quitting. And the real goal to getting good at any skill is to keep trying, just show up and keep doing it. Mm -hmm. Because every time you do it, you get a little bit better. And eventually, if you keep doing the skill enough, you'll meet your vision, right? Mm -hmm. But if you give up, it's not that you weren't capable of doing what you had in your head originally, right? It's not that you weren't capable of it. You just stopped before you got there. But that right. disconnect, especially in today's society, right, where you can just be like, before you were like, oh, I want to learn about this particular concept. So you'd have to sign up for a class at least, you know, maybe not a degree, but at least a class somewhere to go and learn. And, or you'd have to go to the uh, library and break out the little index cards and go find right. the stuff and make your copies. And, but in today's date, you have any question, you're like, oh, I don't know how to do this thing, YouTube, right? Oh, right. Google, how do I? And you can immediately figure out. It doesn't necessarily mean you'll be good at it. You're now armed with the knowledge, right? Right. And it's so easy to get that a lot of people don't realize that physical skills are different when we're training our muscles and our nerves and even the pathways in our brains to adapt to new concepts, it takes effort and it takes time. And there's no way to speed that up other than to just keep. Yeah, moving. exactly. I think what's also fascinating is that once you have trained enough so that your skills actually do match your vision, your vision has changed. But not Absolutely. in the sense of like, you know, well, when I first, you know, walked into this dojo, I envisioned, I don't know, whatever, leaping through the air, doing a handspring and, you know, falling into a roll and kicking somebody, whatever the thing is. And once you're at that point, it's not that, oh, now I can do that. I want to do something more complex. But actually, the vision is I'm really more interested in you know, more details. What's the interior journey? What's the, what, what's the development that I can take out of this? How do I apply this to different areas of my life? If I'm leaping through the air and landing in a role and taking someone down with me, what does that mean in the bigger scheme of things? Which I think is such a, such a rewarding part of the martial arts journey, you know, that it's, 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 um, yeah, you walk in thinking like, oh, I'm going to go in and I'm going to get a black belt. I'm going to be a badass. I'm going to be able to take out like five guys. And your own personal transformation along the way, it can be so profound. If you are lucky enough to walk into a school with really good teachers and really good students and an atmosphere of, of, of honest give and take. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. That's one of the first things that I tell anybody when they ask about why should I take your martial art versus this martial art or what martial art should I take because I'm taller or I'm shorter, which one's good for me, right? Mm -hmm. And I tell everybody, uh, when you're looking to start a martial arts journey, don't get your mindset that there's a particular style because mm -hmm. there are so many options. Right. 
go around the area where you are capable of finding schools and take whatever intro they offer, whether it's one class or a week or whatever, take the intro and go and take your classes and get to know the culture, the students and the teacher. Because if you have a, can develop a good relationship with the culture, the students and the teacher, you will get more out of it than even if you find the martial art of your dreams right. and you find that school, but it's a teacher that you guys just can't get along and there's going to be friction all the time. It won't be a good experience and you won't stay. Right. So right. that's the first piece of advice I give to people who are looking for a martial art is look for a good teacher, look for a good school, and you'll get more out of it no matter what style it is. Exactly. I'm in full agreement that I give that same advice to people actually, but yeah, then no, usually slip in a little bit like, but you know, I said, but I'm good. <laughs> but I'm good. And yeah, I'm good my martial art is really good. No. Um, Absolutely. For me, the part I always tell people about our particular art is uh, at the end of the day, art is a Japanese martial art. So when people see, you know, the samurai arts, the uh, kidos and the karates and the judos and all those ones that derive from there, we have aspects of all of that in our art because it is a Japanese art. Mm -hmm. But what truly sets our art apart is our art was essentially developed by the peasant class, right? Rather than the elite army class. So the goal, the mindset behind the martial art isn't about winning a war or winning a fight or proving I'm stronger or anything like that. The mindset behind the techniques and the moves and the motivation is how do I get home, right? My job in my nine to five, essentially back in the day, might've been planting rice in the field. And if I'm in a smaller vision, uh, smaller village and I end up, you know, dying out on the battlefield and I can't go home and plant rice, there might not be enough rice for this winter and the entire village might die of starvation because I didn't make it. So the number one most important thing in our art is how do I survive? How do I get home? What actions can I take to make it out of this for the benefit of me, my community, those that I serve, what I've chosen to do in my life? Mm -hmm. And to me, that was my big transformation like you talked about while we were training. I, of course, I was, you know, in my very early 20s. Uh, actually, I don't even think I was 20 yet when I started. And so I had this vision of jumping, leaping, taking down five guys. I totally had that. I saw the action movies and that was my vision of taking martial arts. But through my journey in here, I realized that the actual application of self-defense in you is exactly that. How do I end up making it out of this? So whether it's a physical altercation or whether it's a mental stress or whether it's something with my job or whatever, how can I keep who I am, who I've become and what I like intact and make it out of this with as much of that as I can? Yeah, that's, right? an, yeah, that's, an, yeah, yeah, that, that's a really interesting thing because I think, um, especially in terms of self-defense and when I'm teaching people self-defense, the, the oftentimes people join and believe that if you learn a little bit of self-defense, then things are less likely to happen to you, which is untrue Absolutely. because there's a lot of different people in this world making a lot of different decisions, many of which have don't take you into consideration. And certainly people who w want to hurt other people are not taking their target into consideration at all as a human being. But self-defense and martial arts gives you some tools to deal with those situations. And when, so what I'm, what I'm focusing on is what you said about how do I make this home with, with the person that I am and that I like and the things that I like and this life that I cherish intact. Because yep. trauma, especially whether it's very, very severe or even slight, and by that I mean the incident, not the trauma itself, um, trauma unaddressed and and unprocessed will take all those things away from you but trauma yep. is there because we don't know how to deal with a situation we don't have a context we don't have tools and when we do have those tools we are less likely to be traumatized by those incidents you know so it, it for me often I receive, not often, thank goodness, but I do receive emails from people who have taken pretty deadly. Um, and I know I've done this too, to Sensei Minge and, and Sensei Allen. And um, when there is an incident, you know, people write me emails, oh, you'll never guess what happened to me. And something horrible, you know, this guy grabbed me, he grabbed my bag or whatever it is, and I did this move and it was great. 
And I, I'm always so pleased to get those emails because I think here's a situation that five weeks ago would have traumatized you, but instead you feel empowered. And this is brilliant. Yep. This is exactly what these tools are for. They're not going to stop. We can't stop other people from doing the crazy shit that they want to do. But, I mean, well, we can try. But but sometimes we don't see it coming. You know, sometimes we're just standing in the way of, a, of, a, of an out-of-control bus. You know, what can you do? Other than learn how to adapt to that situation with the tools that you have. And the more tools you have, the better chance you have of being able to make it home with the person that you are and the things that you like and the life that you cherish intact. So that was that was great. Sometimes. I could have took that and went off on a tangent, but you gave me a beautiful inspiration for that. So No, and it well, and it's exactly the tangent. See, for me, the that is really at the core of self-defense. When everybody thinks about taking self-defense, they think it's physical. And by all means, what we do teach are physical techniques. Those are the tools that we use to teach. But the actual concept behind self-defense is so much more. You're not just protecting your physical body. Sure, none of us want a broken arm. None of us want to get punched. None of us want to any of that to happen to us. And these tools that we teach physically help us reduce the chances of that happening. But what we're really teaching you is how to defend you. Like you said, who I am as a person. Right. Who do I like? And how can I defend all of that? Half the time, it's just about getting somebody to a level of confidence and reaction that they do something it doesn't there isn't even necessarily a right answer to the situation but just sitting there and allowing the situation to happen to you guarantees that whoever is doing the thing whether it be verbal yelling or you know somebody actually like you said take my bag or something that nature whatever is being done to you if you sit there and do nothing then whatever they are trying to do is guaranteed to happen they have a hundred percent chance of success but if you do something that greatly takes away their power. So, and they, like I said, there isn't even necessarily a right answer in all situations. In many, there are, but in all situations, there is not. But having the courage, uh, the identity of self-worth, and the practice, essentially, of being able to adapt, that you just do something. And that takes away so much of the other people's power that that is really the core of self-defense, well, right? Um, there, I'm going to disagree with you. <laughs> actually, just from a female perspective. Um, yes, um, it's, sure. a, it's the core of self-defense kind of in a universal definition of it. Um, but often the stakes for women are very different. And the, oh, and the, the concepts that we have of allowing something to happen to us, having to do something, often create situations for women in an aftermath where they feel that, or we, I'm a woman too, where we may feel that we have disappointed ourselves or betrayed ourselves or let ourselves down because we didn't do anything. And we haven't been taught the what the, the biological purpose of freezing and being still can actually be and why we do that sometimes and why sometimes we we the term allow is a term that I find very sticky in these situations because um, oftentimes people feel like well I allowed this to happen without understanding that on a subconscious level you may have picked up some information that said this is the best way for you to survive because if you if you even if even for me, with all the tools I have at my disposal, there may be a situation that says, if you make a move, you die. So I, I, I want to be very careful and very, very clear about that because an enormous amount of, like literally 50% of the people on this planet suffer from that pressure of you have to do something. I don't want to allow anything to happen to me. So those are those are words that kind of always set off a little bell for me. Well, and I greatly appreciate you bringing that to my attention about the wording, but that's exactly what I'm talking about is being able to make the conscious decision to do whatever is best for the situation. So if you can get somebody in that situation so that they don't feel guilty later, like I allowed it to happen, but you can adapt and you can actually consciously make the decision rather than just simply going fight or flight, that's an improvement in the scenario. And you may still do, like you said, the do nothing or I'm going to die. 
but being able to consciously think of it while it's happening that this is the best choice and I am making the right choice will make the recovery from it much better, right? You won't feel the guilt. You won't feel the because you know you made essentially an informed decision based on putting yourself in bad scenarios. At the end of the day, that's really what martial arts is all about, putting you in uncomfortable situations and letting you know that you'll be okay. And we never go as far as the people who want to hurt you, right? We're not trying to emulate assault scenarios. We're not trying to emulate kidnappings and, you know, uh, anything like that. But it's the same kind of a concept. Putting you in a situation that you're uncomfortable with allows you, rather than to freeze, to make the hurdle into, oh, I do have a skill to deal with this. And it doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to punch or kick or fight but your brain won't be frozen. So you'll be mm. able to make those yeah, processes gonna, on your own. Yeah, I'm gonna, I'm gonna disagree with you on that again. Um, only having been in a situation, only having actually experienced this in my own life. Now, I greatly appreciate all this stuff because I, I haven't. So I right. can't speak to that. I can only speak to what I read about that or what I've been told right. about Right, and, so and, and I think that's sometimes where where um, self-defense often goes a little bit off track in in its in its desire to help people when we're in a situation where we need to defend where we physically need to defend ourselves um, it's 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 a response it's not a decision there's no decision involved your body simply responds maybe your mouth whatever it is but you respond that's why people scream when you scream it's not a conscious decision it's it it just comes out so and sometimes people don't scream because it doesn't come out and that's not there's no right or wrong about it it's just a response so when we're in terms of self-defense and this is where to me self-defense and martial arts are two very very different things in terms of self-defense it's teaching our bodies it's helping our bodies understand where those tools are so that in the response the best tool comes out because you cannot make the decision you cannot sit there in a situation and say the best thing for me to do right now is to freeze you simply freeze so you may you're picking up a lot of information really really fast that may not process in your analytical brain but you are not making a conscious decision martial arts especially over a long period of training time like like yourself or myself it, it's it's it trains our bodies to not react immediately it trains us to understand like okay i can take a second and stay conscious and make a conscious decision to see what's going to happen instead of just a response and I think that that's a really big difference. But I do think that that kind of training is something that does take 10, 20, 30, 40 years. That's Absolutely. not necessarily what everybody is interested in doing when they want to learn self-defense. So, right. so it's a – but again, I go back to – because it's, because it's so it's, – it's the, it's the biggest challenge that – I experience in what I do with Pretty Deadly and what my other trainers do is that question of what if I freeze? And the the idea of telling people, well, you know, you're doing this so that you can make a conscious decision is not realistic because you can't. You simply react. And so we want to teach people how to re how to trust their own reactions and how to trust that their own reactions are going to be as effective as possible in getting them home with the person that they are and the things that they like and the light that they cherish right. intact. Absolutely. No, and actually I am going to take notes on that and steal that because that's a much better way to word what I was trying to express. But because uh, I absolutely agree with you 100% that uh, it's a reaction and you really can't process it. But it's all about building, in my opinion, better reactions. And I agree with you that martial arts and self-defense are entirely different. Martial art is a tool that you can use to learn self-defense. Right, but right. In and of itself is not self-defense. I completely right. agree with you on that. 
But yeah, I think uh, the training in anything in those physical techniques, especially it's uh, are you familiar with the, the myelin sheath and the nervous system and that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So essentially, that's what, what we're doing by those of us who train for, you know, 10, 20, 30 years is we're reprogramming the myelin sheath. Right. So that when your body just sends out, your brain just sends out that I need to react thing, you react more more likely with one of those that skills that you've been training mm-hmm. than necessarily the ones that you were born with. Because we're all born with a pathway of myelin sheaths that are already in our body for that reinforce that fight or flight kind of idea. Like you're walking down the street and, you know, a stick suddenly comes into view in the corner of your eye. Everybody instinctively pulls their head away and puts their hands up to protect their eyes. Mm-hmm. Right. It's, it's built into our nervous system. It's part of what's kept human beings alive as they've been alive. Mm-hmm. But by pro- processing the physical things, we retrain some of those reactions. Mm-hmm. So I absolutely love that. Learn to trust your reactions. That's, that's fantastic. Rather than saying it, <laughs> rather than saying it's a constant, uh, conscious thought process, because it isn't. And I completely agree with you. That's fantastic. I'm taking that. One of the, one of the things that we do with Pretty Deadly is, is we look for connections. And this is part of the way that I was taught, uh, NIMPO and part of the way you were taught as well. Um, since we come from the same, basically like martial arts lineage, um, one of the things we do is we look for correlations between the techniques that we're learning and movements that women specifically make on a daily basis. So like, you know, women usually put their hair behind their ears a lot, which is the same as an elbow strike. And, and that's kind of how we move along. But we also try to make it a little more fun. So because I don't believe in teaching self-defense from a place of fear, I don't think people actually need the fear to learn. So, but I do think that when you find joy in things and laughter, then you're more likely to go back to a class and learn some more. So, so what we're doing with Pretty Deadly doesn't look like traditional self-defense. And when I first launched this kind of in a more um, conscious way or, or, or as a full-time business here in Berlin, I got the occasional email from people. It, they were always anonymous, um, but not anonymous enough to not tell me what martial art that they trained. So, right. so you know, whatever it was, Muay Thai, Krav Maga, whatever, but always some anonymous email saying, what you're doing is very dangerous. What you're doing is wrong. People often have such that, you know, they have a very sort of dogmatic and idealized view of martial arts. There's a purity and a spirituality and, you know, how dare you make it fun? It shouldn't be fun. You have to be really serious and have intense focus. No, 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 And, you know, you shouldn't laugh and all this ridiculous stuff, which I honestly really do think is ridiculous. So, so, so I got some flack for that. I imagine I will continue to get some flack for that. I really don't care in the end. But you've actually done something really similar, especially with the Binkenjutsu stuff, our sword techniques that we've learned. And you've transferred a lot of that over to the Saber League. Yeah, Saber Legion, actually. Saber Legion, I'm sorry. I was thinking of of champions. But yes, Saber Legion. Can you tell me about that? Absolutely. So I'm going to give you just sort of a little bit of history of yeah. how we of how we got there. So I'll just kind of start from the beginning. So uh, got about eight years, nine years ago at this point, I stumbled, as we all do, with the uh, targeted ads that people see uh, on a company that was advertising that they sell uh, these prop replica lightsabers that are tough enough that you can actually fight with them and they won't break. And, you know, uh, Lucasfilms, these people have been making the prop replicas for a long time that they're just decoration pieces, right? So that's Mm -hmm. what we were used to. So I ordered a couple just to see, and I took them in my backyard, and I beat them on fence posts. I beat them up against trees. Everything I could do to say, are these really going to stand up to things that we do? And they absolutely did. And uh, being a big uh what people would label as a nerd you know i do all the nerd stuff i role play i love sci-fi do all that mm-hmm. kind of stuff so uh star star wars was always one of my favorite franchises 
So I immediately got excited. Uh, I was in the middle, uh, I just received essentially my instructor certificate for Beacon Jitsu. And as you said, we don't always pass those tests. I failed my first attempt to get the instructor certificate for mm -hmm. that particular weapon and had to go back a year later and test again. And uh, so I had just gotten my certificate for that. So I was really excited because I saw a way to make this interesting. A lot of times we run into the very problem you we were talking about where this doesn't look like what people expect it to look like. So right. sometimes it's hard to retain students in Dimpo because kind of whatever is fam famous at the time is what people expect martial arts to look like. It doesn't look like Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. It doesn't look like MMA in the cage. It right. doesn't look like that. So they immediately go, well, this must not be real then. And so they right. lose interest. So I thought this would be a great way to get people interested in learning classical sword techniques, but with a lightsaber, right? How can that not be cool? <laughs> right. Yeah. You know, good question, Aaron. How can that not be cool? Because it is cool. Yeah. Yeah. How can that not be <laughs> <Yeah>. cool? <laughs> So, uh, so I started out uh, at the dojo downtown uh, with uh, Sensei Mark, who was a direct student of Sensei Chadwick's. And when I received my instructor certificate, like you said, we came out to California and I actually received my certificates from your sensei uh, that you trained with, which is how we met. And uh, so I, at the dojo, started trying to offer classes using them. And one thing that I do not excel at, and this is one thing I also think the martial arts help you learn about yourself, is what you are and aren't good at. Mm -hmm. So that you can work on strengthening the things you're not good at and not only focusing at the things you are good at because you don't want to be caught, you know, right. With, right. A, with a too strong of a strength or too great of a weakness. Right. But it also allows you to identify, I'm not good at this, but I know someone who is type of an idea. So in mm -hmm. real life, if you were something like a project manager or whatever, you can apply these skills to say, this is something I'm not good at. But if I ask Todd on the team to do it, we'll have a much better result right? Mm -hmm. So it allows you to kind of swallow some of that ego and pride and recognize good things in others and in yourself and then try to play to people's strengths. Right. So uh, I am not good at advertising myself. Mm -hmm. <laughs> anyway, that whole idea of marketing and promotion is not something I excel at. So my, uh, for about a year, maybe a year and a half, I had three or four people who came to the classes with the lightsaber. And around that time, some people in Minnesota had also found this company, bought themselves a couple of lightsabers, and they went out into their backyard and started playing. And they were just your average people who have never taken a martial art, right? So they very quickly realized, we have no idea what we're doing, and we're just going to end up hurting somebody with these. Mm -hmm. So they started searching through the internet to try and find people who maybe had some skills that could help them learn how to fight with these. Initially, the vision was just these two friends wanted to learn how to fight with them in their backyard. That was the initial vision of TSO. Mm -hmm. They ended up finding a few of us online and quickly we sort of formed this vision and team of saying, you know what, this could be a whole organization where lots of people might want to do this. Mm -hmm. So uh, we formed a team and we took our experience of what are the basics that are important to sword work so that people will be able to use this effectively. Mm -hmm. And then how do we transform some of those to apply those to a way people could actually fight one another safely. So essentially, how could we transform those skills into a lightsaber sport, right? At the end right. of the day, that's sort of the difference between a martial sport and a martial art is a martial sport constantly has to answer the questions, how can we keep this as safe for our participants as is necessary for what we're trying to achieve? Right, right. right. We want our fighters to be able to come back and fight over and over and defend the belts and all this kind of stuff. We're uh -huh. not trying to beat one another to death, right? Right, right. Like a, like a nimpo. <laughs> absolutely. A nimpo, we we're absolutely are. We're just trying to are. beat each other to death. <laughs> to death. That's totally yeah. what we do. Absolutely. Right. <laughs> so uh, that's... Uh, something that we had to answer. How do we take like the skills in Beacon Jitsu, apply them to a fictional weapon, and then create a sport around it that still holds true both to the martial art and the fictional way we see it wielded, right? Wait, wait, wait. lightsabers aren't real. Oh, I know, it's so disappointing, isn't it? Dude, when I had to come dude, to that dude, realization. I'm ending this interview. No, no, I'm kidding, I'm kidding. <laughs> 
But yeah, but uh, if lightsabers were real, those are the kind of questions you have to answer when you're writing these rules. Like uh, mm -hmm. a lightsaber is round. It's more like a stick. But because mm -hmm. it cuts with uh, whatever the blade's made out of, right? There's all these people like, oh, it has to be plasma. It has to be it. I mean, come on. This is a movie that has space wizards and the force. And like, can't we just say it just cuts? We don't mm -hmm. really have to have a scientific explanation. Right. But because it cuts on any surf, it's omnidirectional, right? Mm -hmm. So certain things like making sure that you're gripping with your knuckles facing forward so that the back of your palm can brace for a good cut don't necessarily apply. I can cut in any direction with it and something that cuts strong enough that I can cut through the side of a spaceship or uh -huh. the bottom of a tank, you know, the big walking adats, he just cuts right through the bottom and goes inside. Uh -huh. Like anything that has that kind of cutting potential, you also don't need such an intense skeletal structure that like in the katana world, like being able to cut through seven tatamis, right? Those particular goals no longer necessarily apply, right? right. But the directions, it's still a weapon wielded by a human with a mm -hmm. human skeleton. So footwork so that you have good balance and you're not damaging your knees, uh, understanding the directions of cutting and why you cut in those directions so that you're both protecting yourself at the same time as you're attacking. All of those concepts still absolutely apply. Mm -hmm. So that's what we did. We started developing essentially what we referred to as form one. Right. And we had uh, uh, we taught it in a kata style form because we're teaching people remotely. So this is mm -hmm. something they need to be able to do at home. But so this is something that you started doing remotely before all the pandemic stuff. Right. I mean, you started this Absolutely. in what year? We were technically founded as an organization in 95. But really, we started in 94, right? It took a lot of development before we decided, okay, we're ready to like launch this to the world, right? Mm -hmm. So we started in 94, putting this all to, I mean, sorry, 2004. Yeah, I was going to say, wait a minute. I have no idea why I said 94. What kind of a wormhole are you living in? 2014, right? Okay. Talking from today, <laughs> right? right? 2000, five okay. years ago in 2015. We announced, but in 2014, okay. we began working. Sorry, I have no idea why my brain went to the 90s. I don't know either, <laughs> but. <laughs> but, okay, so, but, so you started teaching Form 1 with Kata and teaching people remotely in 2015, like long before the things we've been experiencing this year of remote learning and, and, and even all the people who have been continuing to practice their own martial arts you know, with their schools on Zoom, et cetera, et cetera. And that's really, re that's, I mean, it's just very, it's very sci -fi, Absolutely. Man. And when we did it, things like Zoom and Google Hangouts and those things where we could have a group call, kind of like what we're doing with video, didn't mm -hmm. exist really yet. Not in any reliable way, without being mm -hmm. a big business or something. It wasn't available to right. the general public. So we, uh, basically what we would do is we would just have people record what they were doing and they'd have to do it twice, record once mm -hmm. from the front and once from the side. And we would ask them to actually do it twice, not set up two cameras mm -hmm. because uh, we're also looking for consistency, right? Sort of right. like what we do in our martial training. Uh -huh. So we would ask them, just use your cell phone, record it once with you mm -hmm. doing it forward, record it once from the side and then submit those into these, we made training groups on Facebook. So wow. we would have these little private groups where people were invited and then we would share our videos and then the students who had been doing it long, longer could offer, you know, help and direction to people just again, like we do mm -hmm. in Nippo, right? Mm -hmm. And then those of us who were in charge of the individual training plans would actually offer the overall thing, uh, the overall critiques and say, really work on this for your next video. And then we ourselves would make videos for people with lots of explanations of why this is important, what we're trying to stress, you know, why is it important that your feet face forward instead of letting your feet go off to the side and various right. things, right? right? And then eventually when they, uh, when they proved that they're practicing and working on it and you can see the improvement, you would have them submit a series of videos essentially for like a test, right? Uh -huh. And we would go over those and we'd get some feedback and everything. And once they were able to submit a consistent set of videos where they definitely got this, then the idea would be they would be move, move on to another form, right? Mm -hmm. So yeah, so we structured wow. it that way and we're doing it for a long time. <laughs> and then what happened is about, uh, God, it was only not even six months, I think, after the launch, people got so excited about this and wanting to do that, that they started clamoring for a tournament. 
which in our minds was years down the line, right? This was going to take a while to get members mm -hmm. and people interested. And it just started blowing up. So we actually scheduled a tournament in Kansas City, uh, setting up our first set of rules. And we had people come from all over the United States. There were 30, either 32 or 36. And there was in the mid 30s, uh, people showed up and wanted mm -hmm. to fight. And like I said, we'd only been around for like six months at this point uh, publicly. Mm -hmm. So that blew our minds, right? That we had enough people uh, nationally, we weren't international yet, but nationally that wanted to come to a local place to fight with lightsabers under our rules set and systems that we, we got really excited, right? Because right. <laughs> right. obviously not every member who is participating online can afford to make the trip, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we, we figured that maybe 30%, 20% of the people who were signed up actually made it to that one. Wow. So we started pursuing that angle of things. We went from just being a training program with a set of rules of how you could fight one another safely to the idea of building a community, if you will. Mm -hmm. So we, we started really launching and focusing on that side. And by the next year, when we had a tournament again, we actually had about 80 people arrive. And our last tournament, which we would have had one here the very uh, first week of August, but with mm -hmm. the pandemic and everything, obviously that was all canceled. But in our fourth year of doing it, we actually had, um, what was it, 98 participants and we had five wow. different brackets. So we had an all women's bracket and over 50 bracket, a tag team bracket, a regular saber bracket and an, uh, ex what we call exotic sabers. So in just four years, we've grown to the point where we were able to support you know, an entire community. We have uh, international participants. People came from Mexico and everything just to participate in this this vision of fighting with lightsabers. It's, you, it's really you guys, you guys, you guys have chapters. All Correct. The, the way we organize right. it, everything is done through social media, the way we do mm -hmm. it. So, and uh, Facebook was big when we started. So we do Facebook and we stick with mm -hmm. Facebook because it's been tried and true for us. But every single state essentially has uh, what we call a charter. And mm -hmm. some states are bigger, right? So that state may have what we call satellites or subcharters, which I'll work through mm -hmm. that. And basically, if you have three people in your area that were excited about doing this and could meet at least once a month face-to-face uh, -face mm -hmm. and work on the skills, essentially, that you need to be safe with the saber, you can start a charter. And the idea was just to go out. We have no dues and no fees for any of our charters. It's all just, you know, we're trying to build a community, get people out there to have fun. Now, when you enter the big tournaments and events, you know, we have overhead and spaces to pay for. So we have to sell tickets for people to participate in order to, to pay for the venues. Right. But your, uh, your charter meets where, and some people meet, you know, twice a week in really excited states, you know, and uh -huh. some people meet once a month. That's all they're able to put together, right? <laughs> But yeah, we have charters, you know, as small as three members, uh, as many as 120 members in some places. Wow. So yeah, wow. we have them in, in 38 states that are active. We have charters in Canada, Mexico, Great Britain. Um, we have a couple in Asia, but I don't want to say the wrong places in Asia, but we have a couple in okay. Asia that are springing up and we just mm -hmm. had a new one start in Australia not too long before the pandemic wow. started. So hopefully everybody will be able to, uh, you know, recover. We're working hard on making online content for people every week to keep mm -hmm. the interest up. But hopefully right. when this is all done, it'll just pick right back up where it left off. Right, of course. So how much of your Binkenjutsu training were you able to, to contribute to the development of TSL? So the, the entire Form 1 is basically rooted in our Binkenjutsu training. Uh, mm -hmm. rather than focusing on the individual techniques where the person does this cut and you answer specifically with this technique, mm -hmm. it's basically built up of the basics. So uh, we have it basically set up into two trajectories or like a halfway point, right? Mm -hmm. So the, the first part of it, basically you're just working on the nine directions of cutting while mm -hmm. you're doing footwork. So you're stepping and you're turning and kneeling, you're thrusting. Mm -hmm. So you work on the nine directions of cutting with popper, proper skeletal structure, proper uh -huh. footwork, and proper grip on the saber. Uh -huh. And then in the second half, as you come down, you put some of those basics together into kata-style uh, 
techniques, if you will. So you do like a head strike, a head strike, a parry, and then cut the body and then turn okay. face the next direction, right? Uh -huh. And then you'll beat the blade aside and, you know, do a straight down cut. So uh -huh. various things where you just put some of those basics into simple concepts rather than specifically the Bikin Jutsu techniques. It uses mm -hmm. the concepts that those techniques right, teach us, right, right? right. So yeah, it's basically the entire form one is basically the essentially intro that you teach somebody up to like a green belt equivalent. Like we don't mm -hmm. really have belts in the weapons, but right, like a right. green belt equivalent, you know, of uh -huh. what you would learn in Bikin Jutsu. And I myself also fight in the Saber Legion. And uh, when I fight, I try very much to sort of stick to our Bikin Jutsu. While it doesn't necessarily give me advantages to win, Mm -hmm. I try and stick to what we do so that I can reinforce, you know, the skills that I've learned in there. And at the end right. of the day, this is all supposed to be fun, right? It's right. supposed to be enjoyable. And, you know, just like you said, I don't think people have to be afraid to learn a skill, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> mm -hmm. So yeah. it's the same thing. It's about making it fun. So in our rule system, like you can have a saber that's up to 51 inches long, but in mm -hmm. our Bikin Jutsu, our katanas are closer to 42 inches, right? right. 40 right. to 42 inches. So right. I fight with a saber that I'm at a 10 inch disadvantage right to start with. Right. Mm -hmm. So, mm -hmm. but that's okay. Right. Right. I'm right. using my footwork and my skills and everything that we honed in mm -hmm. ours uh, to go out there and just have a good time. So. That's so what is your position in the, in the overall Legion? Basically, our, our hierarchy is you have the owners of the actual organization. Once we started getting bigger, we actually had to like register because we have to charge fees and there's all the stuff. So tax mm -hmm. information has to be held and everything. So the owners are the, the same group in Minnesota that reached out initially are the owners. So they reached out and they always have the final say of everything because at the end of the day, if there's something legal that has to be happened, theirs mm -hmm. is the name that's on the paperwork, right? Right. And then underneath them, there are a handful of people with essentially different jobs who have volunteered to do that. So we have like a, a charter lead or an HR representative, if you want to call it, that mm -hmm. specifically helps the individual charters get started mm -hmm. and answers the questions about how can you recruit, how can you get bigger, that sort of kind of a thing. And then we have people who are in charge of like our social media. They're the moderators on the pages. They try and answer people's questions, very something like that, because with, you know, a separate charter in every single group, you know, we have probably upwards of 80 different Facebook groups that are kind of separated under the umbrella of our main group. Wow. Okay. So, so they do their best to moderate and help in those groups. So mm -hmm. there's a whole group of moderators. And then we have a, a training lead for the support structure. Mm -hmm. So in order for us to run these events, we need things like directors and judges and people to keep score at the tables and all that kind of stuff. So we have uh, someone who's in charge of essentially developing that training program about how can I learn to be a good director? How can I learn to be a line judge? Right. How can I help you run these events, right? Because rather than like making a team that we hire and we have to charge extra for we'd rather have this be community driven so right, we right. developed our own training structure for that and then my particular position underneath them i essentially am in charge of writing the rules and the documents so like our mm -hmm. hold harmless agreement all the tournament rules uh the event expectations uh, like when somebody goes to a convention like mm -hmm. how what are you allowed to do and not to do as a right. representative of tsl you know all of those kind of things. I'm in charge of writing and keeping all those documents up to date. And then uh, I'm also in charge of the training program that we're going to be reviving. There was a brief political thing in the middle where the training program became less of a focus because we were having so many success at our tournaments mm -hmm. that we've been really focused on building the tournaments in that side of the community. Right. And uh, the training became less important and a lot of the members of the training team left. And I, mm -hmm. so I'm the only person on that team uh, left inside of there who's still active in doing right, that. Right. So now that the, our rules are getting very codified, I am actually looking to restart that training program up okay. this year. So, and right now with COVID, what a better thing to give people. Yeah, to exactly. With videos, exactly. right? Well, especially because you guys already have, you know, you already have a history of that. So you are ahead of the game um, from so many other people and in, in groups and learning institutions because you've been doing it online uh, yeah, and, and remotely that was our mindset right right so it's so it's there's no like you know oh we have to wait for this guy to figure out da, 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 da. it's it's already there which is fantastic yeah absolutely 
So oh, cool. yeah, well, I'm taking what we learned from our first round of trainings, you know, mm -hmm. uh, know better, do better, and mm -hmm. gonna restructure it a tad. And uh, hopefully by the end of this month, actually, we'll uh, have a new training plan started, so. Excellent, fantastic, good. Well, we'll definitely, um, we want to make sure that everybody is aware of that when it happens, we'll put it on our Facebook too. And, oh, and well, yeah, because, you know, I've trained with you. I know you're good. I know you're a good teacher and I know you're a good martial artist. I imagine you're a good lightsaber fighter. Yeah, I do my best. I don't uh, win most of my matches because mm -hmm. I give myself, like I said, I give up 10 inches of reach when you're mm -hmm. playing a point style system. Mm -hmm. uh, our tournament system, we do point style because because we're remote and we don't have schools where we can certify people are fighting with control and fighting with skill right. and things like that. Right. It, one of the easiest ways to make sure people aren't fighting out of control or they don't get so worked up that they end up fighting without control right. is every time there's a point score, give them a little break essentially. So we do a point style tournament that when there's a point called and a point score, they break apart, the point is rewarded. So they have a second to take a couple breaths before they continue fighting. In, in universe, the other side of that is generally when a light, lightsaber finds its strike, it cuts off whatever it hits. How many hands or arms or heads right. have we seen roll off because of a lightsaber, right? Right, right. So the idea is right. if it lands, it cut off whatever it hit, therefore we stop the fight. But on the subversive side, the underside, when I'm writing the rules, it's all about trying to keep, make sure people are fighting safely. Yeah, 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 yeah. Which is important, even with lightsabers. Absolutely. Safety's paramount with lightsabers, right? Yes, yes, <laughs> yes. Unless it's against the bad guys in which, go for it. Go, go all out. It. Go for it. <laughs> Thank you very much, Aaron. This has been fantastic. I've loved learning more about the, the Saber League. But also, I really like talking about what you've taken from NIMPO and how it's continuing to live in your life. What I love about Aaron is that even though he's a serious student of NIMPO Taijutsu, he always finds ways to keep things light, to embrace humor and laughter, because that's what really keeps you flexible, right? You can find out more about Aaron and the Saber Legion at thesaberlegion.org. Pretty Deadly Self-Defense is a self-defense program based in Berlin, but with coaches and trainers in a growing number of cities in Europe and around the world. If you want to join us, whether it's just to take a course or become a coach, a trainer, or even offer the Pretty Deadly program in your school or studio, let us know through our website at prettydeadlyselfdefense.com or find us through our app. Just search for Pretty Deadly Self-Defense in your favorite app store and download for free. And remember that all of our paid programs fund our volunteer work. So when you empower yourself, you're actually empowering another woman, too. Thanks for being here. I'm Susie Colick, and you've been listening to the Pretty Deadly Podcast. See you next week.